Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Repeating, we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. Prophet of the Airwaves, and welcome to Radio Free Canada News Notes and Opinions from the Underground for Tuesday, September 6th, in the year of our Lord 2022. Prayers going out to everyone affected by that horrendous and cowardly murder spree in Saskatchewan on Sunday. A, a crisis worker, a mother of two, and an elderly widower are the first victims identified in the stabbing rampage. The RCMP has confirmed 10 people, plus the assailant, that would make 11 killed in the stabbings, 19 injured. Additionally, one of the suspects, Damien Sanderson, again killed. His body found in the area of James Smith Cree Nation on Monday. 
The RCMP have sent an alert telling residents of James Smith Cree Nation to shelter in place after a report of a possible sighting of mass-killing suspect Miles Sanderson. Meanwhile, we're slowly learning about the violent history of Miles Sanderson, long before he became the, uh, the main suspect in this mass killing and the subject of a multi-province alert, Miles Sanderson had a history of explosive violence, according to Parole Board of Canada documents. Sanderson's contacts with the criminal justice system span more than two decades. As an adult, he racked up 59 convictions for assault. Assault with a weapon, uttering threats, assaulting a police officer, and robbery. Half, roughly half, of the off- uh, offenses were for breaches of, or failure to comply with pre-existing orders. And because of his violent behavior, he has a lifetime prohibited weapons ban. Police in Saskatoon admit they've been searching for Miles Sanderson since May. Writing in uh, today's National Post, columnist Sabrina Maddow raises a number of very important concerns. One of which is, why were they not keeping tabs on this guy? Why was he allowed to uh, run around like this? Was he not being properly tracked? Why was he allowed to remain in the community? How was he being monitored? What actions were taken when he disappeared? How hard did the police actually search for him before he allegedly began stabbing innocent people? And unfortunately, in Canada, we are becoming accustomed to police failures that precede mass murders. Meadow writes the 2020 Nova Scotia shooting attacks that killed 22 people. The signs were there had anybody cared to look hard enough. A history of domestic violence, suspicious cash withdrawals, a prior guilty plea to assault, reports of antisocial behavior, allegations of alcohol abuse, and a troubled childhood. So we will no no doubt get another inquiry about what went wrong with our police and our parole system this time. Why was the RCMP so slow to release information? Recommendations will be made, but nothing will change. So meanwhile, the same RCMP who are more than willing to spring into action when it involves freezing the bank accounts of innocent Canadians who supported the trucker convoy, they never seem to show the same enthusiasm when it comes to actually doing important police work, like catching real criminals or preventing mass murder. So until they can get those things right, don't expect to get the public trust back anytime soon. If ever. Now, the uh, the crime minister insists COVID isn't over. And he's strongly hinting unless about 90 percent of us get up to date with our vaccines, we could be facing more lockdowns and more mandates. Have a listen. COVID's not done with us yet. We might want to be done with it. 
but it's still around. And yes, we have a lot more tools, a lot more understanding, a lot more knowledge on how to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe that have allowed us to get back to regular life in a lot of ways for a whole bunch of people. But we also know that as winter comes and as people get pushed back indoors, there is a real risk of another serious wave of COVID. One of the best things we can do to prevent that wave, prevent the pressure on our healthcare systems, prevent provinces from having to take decisions around restrictions and mandates, is to ensure that everyone is up to date in their vaccination. The recommendation is, you know, you should uh, be up to date in your vaccinations if you have a, have had a dose within six months. Everyone who has been a while since their vaccination, this vaccination, should look at the fact that we have new vaccines coming out this month that are tailored against Omicron that will provide better protection and everyone should get out and get vaccinated. If we are able to hit that 80, 85, 90% of Canadians up to date in their vaccinations, we'll have a much better winter with much less need for the kinds of restrictions and rules that were so problematic for everyone over the past years. 90%? Are you kidding me? You expect a 90% uptake rate among Canadians? I mean, the data is pretty clear right now. Canadians are done with COVID vaccines. The uptake for the third shot for residents 12 and older is less than 60%. Only 12%, 12% of Canadians have gotten two additional boosters. 12%. Of course, the crime minister hates to be embarrassed. And he's already on the hook for about 400 million doses. That's 10 shots. 10 for every man, woman, and child in Canada. So if he can't coerce us or extort us into taking at least four each, the vaccines, best before date, will expire and will have to be thrown away. But don't worry, Crime Minister. You fritting away billions of dollars of our hard-earned tax dollars, we've already baked that into the equation. You're a liberal. That's what you do. Canadians aren't stupid. Now, too many of us prefer safety to freedom. But most of us, I think, now have figured it out. These vaccines aren't particularly effective. You lied to us when you said they prevent infection. You lied to us when you said they prevent transmission. You lied to us when you said they prevent serious illness and hospitalization. None of those things are true. None of them. Excess mortality around the world in countries with a very high uptake of COVID vaccines, has many scientists, public health officials, funeral home operators, coroners, politicians, and perhaps most telling, life insurance actuaries scratching their heads. They can't figure out what's going on with all of the excess mortality. And yet, and yet, our crime minister says, 90% of us better take the booster or else. That's not going to happen. We're done. Your move, Crime Minister. But be careful. The world is watching. And your horrible reputation, already in tatters, precedes you. Coming up on the show today, the uh, Conservative Party will elect a new leader this weekend. The Conservative Party of Canada, that is. Pierre Polyev is, of course, the presumptive front-runner. But is it still possible that he won't be the leader? 
if he is the leader, would Trudeau dare call an election? And then we have the Conservative Party in the UK. They've elected their new leader. And Great Britain has a new prime minister. Good afternoon. I have just accepted Her Majesty the Queen's kind invitation to form a new government. Let me pay tribute to my predecessor. Boris Johnson delivered Brexit, the COVID vaccine, and stood up to Russian aggression. History will see him as a hugely consequential Prime Minister. I'm honoured to take on this responsibility at a vital time for our country. What makes the United Kingdom great is our fundamental belief in freedom, in enterprise, and in fair play. That's uh, Liz Truss, who won the leadership by a fairly wide margin over her rival. But who is she? How did she get there? Is she really a conservative? Here once again is the, uh, the new Prime Minister of Great Britain, new cons- conservative leader, Liz Truss. We will transform Britain into an aspiration nation with high-paying jobs, safe streets, and where everyone everywhere has the opportunities they deserve. I will take action this day and action every day to make it happen. United with our allies, we will stand up for freedom and democracy around the world, recognizing that we can't have security at home without having security abroad. There you go. Again, Liz Truss, new conservative leader and new prime minister of the United Kingdom. Daniel Boardman from the National Telegraph will address all of these questions. Last order of business in hour two. Paul Manafort was Donald Trump's campaign chair back in 2016. The FBI raided his home, sent him to prison in 2017 as part of the Russian collusion hoax. He was pardoned by President Trump in December 2020. And he's got a brand new book out called Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, But Not Silenced. And he's today's feature interview just after the news at 5. Ruth Gazgowski is our homeschool advisor. She's here to discuss a disturbing case in Quebec where parents who chose to homeschool their children were facing having their kids forced into foster care. So they fled the province. And Alex Lavoie from Rebel News will also be here with more on that story. But first, more on the mass murder in Saskatchewan. Christopher Oldcorn is a reporter for the Western Standard and the Saskatchewan Standard, and he joins me after this timeout. The Richard Sarah Show off and running for Tuesday, September 6th. Facta non verba. We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Uh, so again, we are uh, learning slowly about the uh, violence and the violent history of uh, one of the accused killers, Miles Sanderson. This this was long before he became the uh, the main suspect in this mass stabbing in Saskatchewan on Sunday. He had a history of explosive violence. This according to the Parole Board of Canada. 59 convictions for assault, assault with a weapon, uttering threats, assaulting a police officer. He was serving a five-year federal sentence for assault, robbery, mischief, and uttering threats. Given statutory release last August. That was revoked in November. However, he remained in the community. He remained in the community. And now we're hearing that uh, he may have been spotted on the James Smith Cree Nation. Chris Oldcorn is a reporter for the Western Standard and the Saskatchewan Standard. Christopher, welcome. How are you? 
I'm doing well. How are you? Very well. Uh, what is the latest? Uh, the, uh, this was uh, several hours ago, actually this morning, I think, uh, that the, the police were issuing a sort of a stay, stay in shelter in place order for the, the residents on James Smith Cree Nation uh, after this suspect was spotted. What, any, any further details on that? Do you know? No, and they're not even saying much about how he was spotted or where, but obviously that would uh, give away details of how the police are trying to catch him because uh, you're not talking about a huge community here. Um, and there's been like literally over a dozen RCMP vehicles like racing up to uh, the James Smith Cree Nation uh, since basically just before uh, noon hour here in Regina, which would have been uh, mid-morning for you guys around 10 a.m. Uh, when they issued a, an emergency alert with, and they said to you know, shelter in place in a secure area and don't come out until we tell you. Uh, was, so they think he's there. So I was quoting, a, there was a, a wonderful piece in the National Post today uh, by Sabrina Maddo mm-hmm. raising some, a slew of excellent questions. You know, why was Miles Sanderson allowed to remain in the community? Uh, you know, how, how was he being monitored and what actions were, were taken as soon as he disappeared? I'm, I'm guessing that the, the residents of James Smith Cree Nation are asking these same questions. Yes. And he's been on the Saskatchewan most wanted list since May. They've been trying to find this guy since May. He comes out, does some stabbings with his brother. Looks like he then killed his brother and left him on the First Nation. Uh, and he was spotted here on Sunday in a vehicle here in Regina, where I'm located, um, with another individual in the car. Now, the other individual in the car could not have been his brother because his brother was already dead. They just hadn't found him yet. So he's got to have help from at least one other person. And that was the last spotting of him until like this morning um, when he was spotted. Well, may have been spotted on the First Nation. Um, There's obviously many questions on how did he go from the First Nation down to Regina and back again? It's about a three and a half hour drive. And for a good chunk of that drive, there's only one road and the police have had roadblocks all over the place. So like this guy has got like some sort of Star Trek ability to like put himself in one place and then somehow magically show up somewhere else. So it brings into question, was he actually in Regina uh, or was that something that just threw the police off on purpose? And he's still been on the uh, reserve since then, or has he been moving around the province? In which case, how, like, I don't know how he's doing it. There's police everywhere. Um, it, there's police near schools, obviously, because, you know, kids went back uh, again today after a long weekend uh, they have roadblocks all over the place. Um, I was actually in North Dakota when this happened and then came back uh, to cover the story. And like on my way back, uh, several uh, unmarked police uh, vehicles passed me going the opposite direction. Uh, and I was even warned at the border. And this is sort of Sunday afternoon. They warned me about Regina and going there and so on uh, because he had been spotted there and that there's an emergency alert for the entire province. Um, so this is the, like the police have thousands of extra people working on this uh, and help from other provinces uh, as well. They're using helicopters. They've been using drones, uh, heat seeking. I mean, they're using everything available to catch this guy. Um, And it just seems so implausible. He could do this by himself, Um, but we don't know who is helping him. The police have said in a press conference just the other day, yesterday, they like, someone knows about this guy because they were in the car with him in Regina. If that's actually true, he was in the car. Um, so come out and tell us, like, like, just give him up. He's going to get caught eventually. 
like, like there's no way you can have this much attention on trying to find you and not eventually be caught. Christopher Oldcorn is a reporter for the Western Standard and Saskatchewan Standard. Chris, we'll take a quick time out. A few more questions remain if you're uh, able to stay. I'd appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serrett Show. The surviving suspect in the Saskatchewan mass stabbing may be on James Smith Cree Nation, according to the RCMP. Christopher Oldcorn is with us from the Western Standard and the Saskatchewan Standard. Um, already people are, are starting to ask this question, you know, why wasn't the RCMP more forthcoming? And, you know, this was someone, this was an individual, Miles Sanderson, very, very well known uh, to police. Right now, of course, we have this House of Commons inquiry into the mass shooting in Nova Scotia in 2020, uh, where the... Uh, you know, the gunman had interactions with the RCMP on at least 16 occasions, uh, and yet they failed to prevent mass murder. And people are starting to ask the same questions here again with the RCMP. Um, what are your thoughts uh, on, on, you know, the comparison between these two mass, mass killings? Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Um, Well, in this case, uh, I think... Like the alert went out pretty fast considering um, the first reports came in at about 5.45 a.m. local time. And the first emergency alert went out at 7.14 a.m. local time. So there's only about a 90-minute delay between the first uh, call to the RCMP and when they actually issued the first uh, province-wide emergency alert. Um, You have to keep in mind also that the RCMP was about a 45-minute drive away. So in that time period, they had to drive 45 minutes, figure out what was going on, and then put out an emergency alert. Um, so at the present moment in time, it, it looks sort of like the police were actually on this one fairly quick. Um, but the, you have to keep in mind, too, there was 13 crime scenes um, that happened very quickly uh, on, on both the First Nation and then also in a, a neighboring village as well. Um, and some of the attacks were targeted, uh, like the brothers knew who they were wanting to go after. And then some of them were just completely random or people who were trying to protect other people. So, you know, you had a first responder that was uh, killed. You had a veteran who was killed trying to protect his family uh, that had absolutely no connection to uh, who Miles and Damien went after first. Um, and the police right now, are just everywhere. I mean, you can't look around Regina for that matter because they thought he was here up until a couple hours ago. Um, 
the question becomes, like I said before, how did he go from that First Nation to Regina and back again if he did? It's a three and a half hour drive, making absolutely no stops. And you have to go through a major city called Saskatoon to do it. Um, so the question is, if he did go there and all the way back, how did they get through all these checkpoints? Because uh, the, the police would have had multiple contacts with whatever vehicle he was in. Um, so that question is there. You know, what what happened? How, if he if he was in Regina, how did he go all the way to the First Nation to Regina and back again? That's a that's a huge question they need to answer. Right. Right. Well, I mean, again, going back to his pre- previous, you know, altercations with the law and his criminal record and the fact that he stopped meeting with his parole officer and then mm-hmm. just completely vanished. Uh, you know, we have to find out what what efforts were being med- made to apprehend him. As you pointed out, he, he was basically being searched for since May. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these questions obviously will, will be uh, be asked in, in the meantime. A very important question, Christopher, and that is, do we have any updates on the number of casualties uh there were 11 dead including one of the suspected killers 19 injured has that changed at all no that that is that number is for the time being steady they don't believe they found any other um victims damien was the last one which they found in a grassy area on the first nation um the 19 injured that also includes miles uh it is believed that he is injured and he does need medical attention um, so they have actually increased security around all of the hospitals and so on, um, just in case he does try to go uh, and, and get uh, help. Uh, I mean, he's obviously not going to walk into an emergency room and say, hey, I'm cut. Can you fix me? Uh, he's, uh, so they have increased the security around all the hospitals, particularly in the main city of Regina, where they thought he was, too. Right. Um, and, and there's many questions here, too. I mean, like like just in February, I'm just going to read a little quote here. This is from the parole board in February of this year. It's in the board's opinion that you will not present an undue risk to society if released on statutory release and that your release will contribute to the protection of society by facilitating your reintegration to society as a law abiding citizen. I think they're slightly wrong on that assessment. Uh, yeah, uh, tragically, tragically wrong. As a- and and he did two risk assessments. One, he was uh given a medium to high risk and the other assessment was high risk. And they still extended parole to him and said that in February on his uh, parole meeting. And and by May he was disappeared and gone and they've been searching for him since then. Yeah. And tragic consequences. So um, I hope, I hope there'll be at, at the very least another inquiry this time, maybe the RCMP is not in the spotlight this time, perhaps the parole board of Canada. I think they have some serious uh, issues to address. Uh, just we have about a minute here, but um, sure. once again, it, 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 it's, it would appear that this case is going to cast uh, a, a spotlight on you know drug and alcohol abuse. That was certainly they they, they believe a factor here with um, the accused Miles Sanderson. Um, any any thoughts on on you know what efforts can be made immediately to address this ongoing situation? Yes, he had a he started using cocaine when he was 14. He was using drugs. Uh, sorry, he was using alcohol before that. Uh, and, and part of his release was he was not allowed to drink or do drugs. Uh, that was one of the conditions of his release. Um, and one of the chiefs of, has actually spoken out and said, you know, this is putting a highlight on the problems that we do have in our reserves uh, with drugs and alcohol. And we need more help. Uh, and this, you know, what might come out of this is that there could be better treatment programs. Uh, Because there obviously needs to be. 
um, not only to prevent you know mass events like this, but also um, you know other stuff that we don't see in the news every day. Um, and, and the chief said this is a very serious issue. And if any good can come from this, maybe it is we'll get more help uh, in those areas on the reserves. Uh, and uh, the, the province has already sent up uh, mental health workers and so on, and they're set up in a school on the First Nation right now to deal with the trauma of what's going on right now with with residents uh, and the people affected. Um, but there is possibly some good that could come out of this in that they might focus more attention on helping with addictions uh, on the reserves and off the reserves. You know, we have a massive epidemic across this country, across this world with things like Oxycontin, for example. Um, and that affects everyone. It, it, it doesn't matter where you are. There are people who get addicted to Oxycontin. And that's, that's a huge true. issue. All right, Christopher. Great job as always. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Have a great day. Christopher Oldcorn, reporter for the Western Standard and Sas- Saskatchewan Standard. When we come back, Alex Lavoie from Rebel News will be here to talk about the uh, parents in Quebec who were facing the threat of having their children forced into foster care because they chose to, wait for it, homeschool their children. That story next. Stay with us. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. A family in Quebec had to flee that province for Manitoba after they were forcing or after they faced a a threat of having their children forced into foster care. Now, why did this happen? Well, the parents had made a choice to homeschool their three sons, and uh, that didn't end well. Alex Lavoie is with uh, Rebel News, and she's on top of the story. Alex, welcome once again. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for having me uh, today. So tell me about the Brazo family. They had th- uh, the, the, the couple had three boys. They decided to homeschool them. What went so horribly wrong? So the, the, the tr- two of the three kids have some uh, problem. Um, they have some uh, issue uh, for learning, so they decided to keep them uh, and homeschool them. And this, they took the choice to keep the third one that he was bullying to do some homeschooling. They they made uh, they they filled the application. They received the email, the confirmation that the three kid was uh, registered for homeschooling, but. It's it's happened that they say that unfortunately they didn't receive their application for the homeschooling and everything they generate to a point that they receive some anonymous uh, complaint to the Department of Protection of Child. And once the DPG, we call it DPG in Quebec, once the DPG is on your case, this is really difficult since the law 15 in Quebec has passed that accord more power to the state over the children than the natural parent. Right. So someone, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to connect the dots here. Someone presumably saw these children uh, at home at a time, maybe when they normally would be in school, uh, thought, well, you know, this isn't right. These, these children should be in school. They called the authorities and because the, the, the Brazo family had, in fact, registered their children to be taken out of public school and homeschooled, for whatever reason, there was a mix-up. And so the government was threatening to take their children and put them into foster care? 
you know, it's even worse. So after the subscription of their children to homeschooling, the, the homeschool department have contacting them to say that uh, we don't receive your subscription. You need to do it again. They say, no, but we receive a letter from you saying that, yes, you receive our subscription of our children. And they say, mister, you're not in good faith. I'm calling the Department of Protection of the Children. And that everything started right there because she said that they didn't receive the subscription when he had the proof on his side that everything had been done in a good way. Okay, so again, they had registered the children. For whatever reason, the authorities claimed that they didn't. There was a mix-up. And for that reason alone, they were threatening to take them away? So it's really a complicated story. So it's half an hour long uh, interview. But Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. It's It started with that. And afterwards, it was... Um, argumentation between the authority and them saying that now that you didn't subscribe, we will follow your case, but you need to provide some credit like teachings credit for uh, going further in your homeschooling. If you don't have this credit, you cannot homeschooling anymore. So we just deregister you. We just unsubscribe you from the homeschooling. But this is an article for in how the homeschooling work. And so you can apply. Mr. Brazo wanted to apply the Article 8 that he can have a derogation on about the credit because his children was not capable. They were not at the level needed for doing the credit. And afterwards, they didn't want him to subscribe for the derogation to um, be expense to provide some credit. And everything is carried in so fast that they were obligated to go to a court appeal. And when he went to the court, he saw some document that he never received, but the, the criminologists say that, yes, um, he received the document. And because he said, no, I didn't receive, and he wanted to, to do like a kind of citizen arrestation against him. And so afterwards, the, the court said, no, we will fix a date and we will come and search your kid. 
All right. And so with, were they fearful that their children would be taken away from them? As, and, that, and that's why they, they left for Manitoba? So they were scared that, because they were supposed, the Department of Protection were supposed to come and search their, search their kids. And so they say, okay, they call their children. They say, bring the minimum that you can. We are leaving tonight. And they left and the, the um, secret, uh, the police did um, call them and say, no, you need to come back. You need to provide us an address. We need to investigate on your children. And it, were, it was so scared that he didn't, he didn't do it. And when he arrived in Manitoba, he asked, like, oh, it's work. And they say that the law in Quebec doesn't apply in Manitoba, so they were free to homeschool. And so now they are been taken um, by other, like, by, like, organization for the protection of the homeschooling. And they say that right now, Everything works well. They don't have any problem. But as you know, Quebec has different constitution on so many different things that it's really difficult for, example, lawyer or like the, the, the organization who do protection for the homeschooling. It's difficult for them to give advice to Quebec people since we have a different constitution. Yes. And the rules for homeschooling very different in Quebec than uh, here in Ontario, for example, where, um, you know, I, I homeschooled my boys and uh, it was um, best thing I ever did and uh, far more relaxed, obviously, in terms of the regulations. Alex, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. And if people, uh, the people are really interested, I invite them to watch the full interview at ribbonnews.com. I think uh, it's really worth to watch. And I'm sure that a lot of family live this kind of problematic. Rebelnews.com. Check it out. All right. Thank you, Alex. When we come back, we'll uh, dig further into this story with our homeschooling advisor, Ruth Kaskowski. Stay with us. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk. Saga, 960 a.m. Homeschool Advisor on The Richard Serrett Show. All right, welcome back. We're going to follow up on this story. I was discussing with Rebel News reporter Alex Lavoie about this uh, Quebec couple. They were homeschooling their three sons. And uh, there was some mix-up, apparently. It's a very complicated story, but uh, the documents necessary to register their children for homeschooling, in other words, to indicate to the authorities that they were no longer in the public school system. Uh, some mix-up, perhaps. Uh, the authorities say they didn't get the uh, the registration documents. Some uh, investigation ensued involving the Department of Protection of Young People. And, of course, Quebec has this uh, Bill 15, uh, which means now that the child's interest is put uh, before any other consideration, including that of the parents, uh, the parents were fearful that their children might be forced into foster care. And so they fled for Manitoba. So obviously the, uh, the homeschooling situation in Quebec is very, very different than what we enjoy here in Ontario. Ruth Gaskowski is our homeschool advisor and the founder of HumanitasFamily.net. Hey, Ruth, how are you? Very good, Richard. Happy to be back. Yes, welcome back from uh, your uh, sojourn in lovely Switzerland. Um, let me get your, your general reaction to this story. When a, a family has to flee for fear of having their children forced into foster care, all because they, they chose to homeschool. I mean, I know it's more complicated than that, but what are your thoughts? Right. 
I think my first reaction was to add this story to the list of human rights offences that we've been experiencing here in Canada. Um, the UN actually has, you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which states that parents have a prior right to choose the kind of education that shall be given to their children. So the Brazil family exercised their right to homeschool, but got caught in a bureaucratic minefield. And I thought it was particularly ironic that schools have been undereducating our students. They've created this immense academic learning gap over the last two years. And yet, when a family made the decision to take education in their own hands, they are threatened with the removal of their children just because forms were not either properly filed or lost. Um, so I think it, it shows that um, when you step outside the system, it's essential to know your rights and to defend them. And um, it's, it's, it's shocking that in their case, it led them all the way uh, out of the province to try and and save uh, their children from being taken away. So, so I think it's just another human rights offense that we can add to this. What are the rules in, in Quebec regarding homeschooling? It seems to be very different than here in Ontario. They're extremely different. Uh, Quebec is one of the most regulated and inhospitable provinces for homeschoolers in Canada. Um, their law and regulatory framework changed considerably in 2017 and again a year later when they introduced this Bill 144. And I'll just briefly mention to give you a quick idea. So um, you have to, as a homeschooling parent, notify the homeschooling office um, at the Ministry of Education every year in July. You have to submit a learning project which details the exact plan uh, that you will teach your student. You have to give status and midterm reports. You have to give completion reports at the end of the year. You have to attend monitor meetings. And at the end of the year, you have to attend a third-party evaluation uh, with the child each year. And as well, this year it added um, you the child has to attend Quebec's ministerial examinations. So no other province is as tightly regulated as Quebec and I think it's very important for anybody who resides in Quebec to comply with the regulations because as they seem to be very quick in kind of flagging people that do not kind of comply with all the things that they have laid out, which I think is what happened with the Brazil family. Uh, they very quickly were labeled as non-compliant and uh, subsequently had that uh, children's department kind of... Um, uh, look into their case. So they have very detailed and tough regulations there. So how are parents' rights protected in other parts of Canada? Yeah, it's quite different there. Um, so in all provinces of Canada, um, homeschooling is legal and it's protected. And um, it, since the mid-90s, we've had policies and regulations that are actually standardized in each province. And generally, it involves a simple notification process. For some provinces, um, there's maybe an educational plan or a progress report required, but in no other province is it like in Quebec. Um, some Western provinces actually even offer financial incentives for homeschoolers. Um, but the best province to homeschool in is actually Ontario, uh, where all that is required from the parent is a notification of intent to homeschool. So this notification alone is to be accepted by the school board as evidence of satisfactory instruction. So there's no need to provide an educational plan. You don't need to agree to meetings and you don't have to follow the Ontario curriculum. So um, 
it's it's important that people actually understand their rights, and I have them all on my website. I have a whole page about what the different um, rights are for homeschoolers within Canada, because it's important to understand them so that we do not normalize any overreach by the school board with compliances, because often we can feel intimidated maybe um, if we're acting kind of outside of the system and if we're not aware of what our rights are. So I just want to say, like, while this story kind of from Quebec um, might um, deter some parents thinking, oh, gee, it seems to be dangerous to homeschool, Canada is one of the best places uh, in the world to homeschool. And I would just encourage parents to understand their rights and to communicate them in a kind of a polite and firm manner with the school boards that they deal with. Right. That's Quebec. That's not the rest of the country when it comes to homeschooling. Uh, but again, yeah. uh, the rules and regs all posted up at uh, humanitasfamily.net. Thank you very much, Ruth. Always appreciate your time. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Thanks, Richard. Bye-bye. Welcome back. All right. Uh, second hour awaits. Daniel Boardman, senior contributor with the National Telegraph, will be here. We'll talk uh, about two conservative parties and uh, two leaderships. Uh, one has been wrapped up in Great Britain, where the uh, newly minted leader of the conservative party in Great Britain, Liz Truss, is now the prime minister. But who is she really? Is she really conservative? Is she another Margaret Thatcher or just another globalist? Also, the conservative party leadership uh, will wrap up this weekend in Canada. Pierre Polyev is the presumptive um, uh, front runner. Uh, is there any chance he won't be the leader? And assuming he is elected leader, would Trudeau dare to call an election against a Pierre Polyev as leader of the Conservative Party? But coming up next, Donald Trump's former campaign chair, Paul Manafort, is here. He's got a brand new book called Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, But Not Silenced. Stay tuned. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell... I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes. 
eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. You're out of order! You're out of order! The whole trial is out of order! You have meddled with the primal forces of nature! And you Welcome to Hour 2, and if you missed Hour 1, you missed a lot, but uh, don't despair. Still, plenty of great, great programming coming your way, including Daniel Boardman, senior contributor with the National Telegraph. We'll talk about the uh, the tale of two conservative parties, one in Great Britain, where they have uh, named their new leader, Liz Truss, who is now Prime Minister. Who is she? Is she another Margaret Thatcher? Or have we been deceived? And uh, in Canada this weekend, our Conservative Party will uh, hold its leadership convention and we will have a new leader of the uh, opposition. Will it be, a Pierre, will it be the presumptive frontrunner, Pierre Polyev? All indications are that, yes, he will be the new leader. But is there any path to victory for Jean Charest? Uh, and if Polyev is the new leader, how likely well, we see a uh, an election called in the fall. Would Trudeau dare square up against the newly minted leader of the Conservative Party? All right. Right now, a great pleasure to uh, welcome to the program President Donald Trump's campaign chair in 2016. Paul Manafort has a brand new book out called Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, But Not Silenced. Mr. Manafort, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me today. My pleasure. Uh, So for those who are still operating under this idea that your imprisonment was about, you know, your work with certain clients in Ukraine that were perceived as pro-Putin or that it had to do with tax evasion or money laundering, just take a few minutes and and, uh, set the record straight. Thank you. I appreciate that. The book goes through it in much more detail than I will this, this afternoon. But uh, the book really talks about the real the real story, the truth. Uh, and the reason I wrote it was because uh, during the time when the whole Russia collusion hoax was, was uh, prominent and they were targeting me, uh, they put a gag order on me. Uh, they put me in solitary confinement uh, and they were leaking anonymously false information uh, that basically convicted me in the court of public opinion long before I ever got my trial. It was the strategy that you're seeing replicated now with this Marlago raid that the Department of Justice is is pursuing on uh, for President Trump. Uh, so I wrote the book to lay out the facts, many of which were already in the public domain, but were just ignored during the time I was going through uh, the crisis. For example, you raised the Ukraine situation. Um, I was active in Ukraine. I elected several governments in Ukraine. Uh, and we, the work we, pro- we focused on was preparing Ukraine very publicly to join Europe and the European community. Uh, we got a lot of pushback from the Russian government, including President Putin. And uh, the Yanukovych government, which I had helped elect, ignored Putin and pursued changing their whole legal system, their economic system, their regulatory system in order to comport with the requirements of the European community. The book goes through those details. But Andrew Weissman and Bob Mueller needed a connection to Russia because there was none. And so they just created a fiction. Since I had worked in Ukraine, 
that they said that I was the link through some people who had worked for me, uh, tying Trump and Putin together. And in the book, I disprove this, this, this it, uh, including, thank you, I mean, when I wrote the book, I finished it really last December. So I got the whole first year of the Biden administration in the book. And in the course of that, I also got the Durham investigation trials, uh, you know, covered as well. And facts came out during those during that time frame, which put all the context you needed into the who was who was responsible for Russian collusion and for the fake narrative. And what we found was by the admission of Hillary Clinton's own campaign manager under oath in in a a trial and Durham investigation, Mooks, Mooks admitted that he was told by Hillary Clinton to put out the false narrative that they knew was false, tying Trump to Russia and saying that Putin wanted Trump to win. And they did this because they were trying to deflect from the concern they had about the Clinton server and all the problems that was causing her in her campaign. We also know from the Durham investigation that about two or three days later, John Brennan, the CIA director, from his own handwritten notes, we know, went and briefed Obama on this Clinton um, fake narrative. Uh, And we also know now that Peter Strzok, at the end of July, about two weeks later, started the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, looking for proof of Russian collusion between Trump and Putin, proof that they knew didn't exist. The White House knew, the CIA knew, Clinton campaign knew, uh, and and, and Department of Justice knew. So the whole whole, uh, narrative was a farce and a lie and a deceit on the American people. Um, and so I, I walked through all of that in the context of what was happening. And then I, I get into how, because they had no, no link to Russia, they just created a crime for me. And the, and the Foreign, Registr- Foreign Corrupt Practices Act is an act that's been around since the 1930s that requires people who lobby in the U.S. government for foreign interests to register. It's a filing requirement. Um, I didn't lobby the foreign, the U.S. government. I was electing people in Ukraine. I was running elections. I actually hired lobbyists who did file. Um, but when the whole uh, issue got raised, the fair unit, typically of what, to what it does, contacted me. I put them in touch with my lawyer. And over the course of the next couple of months, you know, we worked out why I didn't think I needed to file. And we reduced the period of time that, that they said they would like me to file. And I filed. No crime, no civil violation, no penalties, no fi- uh, uh, fees, just a, fi- a, file, a limited filing. And I filed it. But then Bob Mueller got appointed and Andrew Weissman called that office, talked to the director and said that uh, what's going on with the Manafort situation? So there is no situation. Uh, he's resolved it. He's filed and it's over. And he says, well, I'm throwing out that resolution and I'm taking it over. And then he indicted me for criminal criminality that had never been used in the history of the Fair Act going back to the 1930s. So that, that, it, it all comes in the book, walks through that in much more detail and shows how the system has got two tiers of justice and, and how they, they targeted me, not because of me, but because they wanted to squeeze me to give them Donald Trump. And, uh, and to do that, I would have had to lie, which I wouldn't do. Paul Manafort. President Trump's campaign chair from 2016 and the author of Political Prisoner, persecuted, prosecuted, but not silenced. Uh, When you look at uh, what happened in Mar-a-Lago last month and the FBI raid, 30 armed agents and uh, 
then we had, of course, the heavily redacted um, uh, affidavit for the uh, for the warrant and so forth. Do you see any parallels between the way that your house was raided uh, in terms of like, for example, we know that the the warrant was uh, uh, was not you know, readily available to uh, the the, uh, the staff in Mar-a-Lago, the, the uh, lawyers were made to stand outside. Uh, it does appear as if it was a general warrant, which is against the the um, the, uh, the First Amendment. They weren't uh, they weren't uh, looking in any specific place for specific documents, which is the way an, a warrant is a proper warrant is supposed to be uh, handled. Any any um, parallels between the Mar-a-Lago raid and the raid on your house? Yeah, the parallels are exact. I mean, Trump was cooperating with the with the Department of Justice. They had disagreements, but he was cooperating with them. And and as far as he was concerned, the process was still going on. When they raided my house, I was cooperating. In fact, that week when they raided my house, I had just finished testifying and working with the Senate Intel Committee and the House Intel Committee, both of which were conducting investigations. And I had given them everything and told them, if you need more, let me know. Um, but yet, uh, I think it was a Thursday morning at six o'clock in the morning, dark. I had 15 uh, FBI agents and flak jackets not come to my door, come to my bedroom door. They got into my apartment. I was asleep, just waking up. And on the other side of my bedroom door, which was closed, I hear, this is the FBI, hands up. We have our guns out. We're coming in. Now, I had a bunch of crazy people, you know, calling me traitor, calling me uh uh, Russian stooge, all kinds of things that were stirred up because of the false stories that were being promoted about me. So as far as I knew, this could be the FBI, could be some of these crazy people on the street. I, I definitely believe somebody could have had a gun in there. But what could I do? I answered the door. We, we worked things out. Nine hours later, they'd gone through everything, including my wife's closet, just as they went through Melania's. And, uh, and they, on a very general research, went back 20 years of my life in taking documents. Now, <laughs> I was 20 years ago. I wasn't working for Donald Trump. I wasn't running his campaign. He wasn't running for president. But they went literally back 20 years uh, in, in documents and it still found nothing. And then had to rely on, on, on a liar uh, to make things up and, uh, and still only convicted me on eight of 18 charges. Um, and just after, after four weeks of a trial and, and almost five days of deliberations. Uh, so, yes, the parallels are exact. I mean, it, they had, like what they're doing with Trump, they were trying to intimidate me again. This is another one of Weissman's tricks, Andrew Weissman's tricks, to sort of say, you know, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. All you have to do is tell us what we want to hear, not what, we, what happened, what they want to hear. And I wouldn't do it. Uh, Paul, we'll take a quick time out, come back and discuss further. Donald Trump's former campaign chair from 2016, Paul Manafort, political prisoner, persecuted, prosecuted, but not silenced. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Paul Manafort uh, stays with us. President Trump's campaign chair back in 2016 and uh, the author of Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, But Not Silenced. Uh, so you mentioned Andrew Weissman, again, one of uh, Bob Mueller's lead prosecutors. Uh, did he ever give you specific instructions and just sort of laid it out? Listen, if you admit to this, this and this about Trump, you can walk. Did he ever lay it out that clearly? No, it was never laid out that clearly. But it was I mean, he had a narrative that he wanted me to accept and confirm and confirm. Uh, and, uh, and the impression was that they would go lean on me 
if uh, if I agreed to it. I mean, I never got to the point where we could have that kind of discussion because I wasn't going to lie. And uh, and even though I spent fifty hours with them, uh, you know, they and they tried every which way to get me to accept a timetable and a narrative and, and people they had they had me you know be calling Carter Page. Carter Page was dealing with the the Kremlin, Kremlin passing messages back and forth to me to Trump. I never talked to Carter Page. I never met Carter Page. Uh, and, I mean, it's just one example. Um, and uh, and so. Uh, we, you know, they, they were more careful than that, but but it was clear what they were fishing for and what they wanted me to say. And when I wouldn't say it, they then accused me of lying again. Uh, the sentence was it seven and a half months or seven and a half years total, or was uh, yeah, there- it was seven and a half years total, of which I uh, it, you know, I ended up spending about two years in prison, of which about almost 11 months was in solitary confinement. How did they justify that? The solitary confinement, I mean. For my protection. For your protection. <laughs> For my protection, yeah. So they, I mean, this was when they were trying, they were talking to me, trying to get me to buy into their narrative. You know, it was a nine by 12 cell, no windows, you know, uh, a crack in the door for food to get in three times a day. No outside, couldn't go outside, couldn't exercise outside of the room. Uh, totally limited to that, to that, uh, that small space. Um, now, when I ended up being sentenced and went to uh, prison in Pennsylvania and I was put in the general population, I was never in danger. <laughs> in fact, they, I was a hero to many of the prisoners because Donald Trump had done what his predecessors didn't do. He kept his promise and he, he started to change uh, the rules and the laws regarding uh, you know, in, inmates and the First Step Act, the CARES Act, uh, trying to reduce the sentences for people who, would, you know, who didn't commit violent crimes. And they, and they appreciated that. So as his chairman, to them, I was a hero. Uh, but to Andrew Weissman, I was the bad guy. So I had to be protected against those people who didn't look at me as a, as a bad guy. Tell me about someone that you considered to be your mentor that sort of took you under, <clears throat> excuse me, took you under his wing in prison, Ralph. <laughs> well, there were, there were a number of people, but I had no idea because I had spent 11 months in, in solitary confinement. Uh, you know, that's all I knew about prison. And, and since Weissman had been telling me, this is for your security, I didn't know what was going to happen. Well, when I finally got put into the, was sent to the Loretto prison in Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania, and walked into a big dormitory kind of facility, which was a processing area for me to get assigned to a room with other uh, roommates and things like that, I was approached by this guy who came up to me and said, uh, he introduced himself and said, "Uh, you are, uh, you don't have anything to worry about. We're going to protect you. You, you, Don't worry about it. And, uh, I said, well, I didn't know I needed protection. And he says, you don't, but we're going to still take care of you. And then they, they they helped introduce me to the protocols of prison, which, of course, I had no idea about. And uh, it helped me get set up in uh, simple things like toiletry kits, things like that. And, uh, and, and made me feel like I could survive what I didn't understand. Were you thinking that you were going to have to serve the full seven and a half years? Were you prepared to serve the full seven and a half years? Well, I had to be prepared for it because I, I didn't give them what they wanted. But I had every hope and intention that, uh, that I would get, get a pardon. I never talked to the president about it, never sent a specific message because I didn't want to complicate his situation. Uh, you know, the White House leaked like a sieve. And the last thing I wanted to do was have any kind of paperwork inside the system from me or from my lawyers asking for a pardon. So I was just relying on the president 
knowing that I had done the right thing uh, and uh, and uh, doing the right thing for me. And uh, I talk about that in some detail in the book. I mean, at various times I was hoping the pardon would come down and it didn't and I was disappointed. But uh, but I always felt that the outside time limit would be after the 2020 election, win or lose. Uh, and, uh, and that's what happened. Well, I mean, I don't I'm up, up here in Canada. Maybe you can explain you know, how it works in the U.S. Uh, and I'm not understanding. But why did it take the president 23 months? I think it was to pardon you. It could have happened sooner. Why didn't it? Did you ever get an explanation? I never asked. I mean, look, I, I, as a political strategist, uh, I understand those people who are advising him would tell him, you know, this that this is a risk here or risk there. Uh, and and while I don't agree with that, I think he could have done it at any time he wanted. I could understand w- w- that he was getting advice to let me stay there until politics had passed, meaning the election. Um, I never asked. I mean, I was happy. He gave it to me, a full pardon, uh, gave me my life back. And uh, for that, I'm very appreciative. And, uh, and I moved on. Uh, Paul, we'll take one final time out, come back, just a, a few minutes uh, remain, and we'll... Uh... We'll get to some other issues. Paul Manafort, President Trump's former campaign chair and the author of Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, But Not Silenced. Back with more of our conversation in about two minutes. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. A few minutes remain with Paul Manafort, President Trump's former campaign chair and uh, the new memoir, Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, But Not Silenced. Uh, I don't know if you can divulge or whether you're, you're um, willing to, but uh, when you got out of prison, did you have an, a, a conversation with President Trump? And if so, what what did he say to you? Yeah, he he, uh, he called he he, he uh, pardoned me on December 23rd. And the way the pardon works, it's effective immediately. Uh, so at five o'clock on December 23rd, uh, I was a free man again. And uh, the next day he called me to wish me happy Merry Christmas, and to tell me that, uh, and I talk about this in the book, how he's very happy that uh, he was able to do this, and uh, and uh, he wished me the best, and he knows I, that, that it was a suffering, bad time for my family and me, uh, and uh, that uh, he will be forever appreciative of what I did. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. When we see what happened uh, at Mar-a-Lago and we see... What can only be described as the weaponization of the justice system in America, the FBI and the Department of Justice. Uh, and then we heard 
President Biden's Soul of America speech in which he basically demonized about 75 million Trump voters as dangerous extremists. Uh, what are your what are your thoughts? What are your concerns about yeah. your country? Yeah, no, it's it's not the country I know. Uh, I, I, I wrote this book for two reasons. One, I mentioned at the top of this interview, which was to get the truth out about my situation. But the other reason I wrote it and, the, and really the, the overarching reason I wrote it was because I wanted American people to understand that while I appreciated all the well wishes, all the prayers uh, and think, you know, about my situation, they need to understand that they're in the crosshairs, too. And that, uh, you know, and I wrote this at the end of December. I said the Biden administration is coming for, your, for anybody who supported Donald Trump or who won't give in to the woke culture that they're trying to you know, impose on our, on our society. And I, and I talked at that time, you know, about the, uh, you know, parents at school board meetings being considered, being considered domestic terrorists and this, this disinformation bureau that they wanted to impose at the Homeland Security to call anybody who disagreed with their impression of the situation in the U.S. terrorists. Uh, and of course, since then, we've got 87,000 armed IRS agents ready to, to go into red, red America. Uh, you've had, uh, you know, prosecutors treating victims as if they're ones responsible for the crimes. Uh, and you've got, for example, protesters from January 6th, many of whom didn't commit crimes, were, didn't go into the Capitol, were exercising their constitutional rights, uh, still sitting in prison and without the ability to talk to their lawyers, uh, without even being charged. I mean, th- that is not the America that I, I, I know. That's not what the founding fathers meant. And that's why I wrote the book. And, uh, and but I have a positive feeling in the, in the book, and I think that if people mobilize, if they do what has to be done, that we can take back our government this election, and then we, it's the beginning. I mean, and winning back the Congress will will stop the erosion of our constitutional rights that the the Democrats and the Biden administration are uh, are, are imposing on us. And then in 2024, we take back the White House, and then we can finish draining the swamp. And, and that's what has to happen. If they do that, I do believe we will be fine. Well, speaking of draining the swamp, uh, it, it was reported that in the uh, in the final month of uh, his administration, he had signed an executive order. I believe it's called Schedule F, which would have effectively done that by reclassifying um, federal employees that would have enabled him to, to fire uh, many levels deep in, into the bureaucracy. Uh, it's been suggested that on his first day in office, if he were to be reelected in 2024, that that he re, um, I guess, re-sign that executive order or whatever the mechanism is. Do you have any any uh, knowledge about that executive order? What would he bring it back? How effective would it be? I, I don't have any knowledge about that executive order, but I do believe that if he runs again and Biden is making it very difficult for Trump not to run again, uh, I think uh, he will finish the job and it'll be a he'll have experience. He'll have a team, neither of which he had when he took took office in, in 2017. Uh, and he knows the swamp a lot better. And uh, and uh, I think he'll be much more effective in finishing the job that he was starting. Um, and, and that's why it's important that this November, Americans go to the polls, change the Congress, because that when they do that, the new Congress can start the investigations, not to retaliate, but to expose the corruption uh, and to start to focus on what needs to change 
when the when the uh, a Republican president is elected in 2024. Are you concerned that the 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 Biden DOJ will attempt to indict Trump? And and if they were to do that, what do you think might happen? Well, I think uh, nothing is outside the possibility with this this Biden administration. Um, it'd be real. It would be an outrageous thing. I mean, there's no basis ever for an archives document uh, situation to result in a former president uh, being being indicted. Uh, that's what you do in Tin Horn Republic. That's what we we try and help in emerging democracies to avoid. Um, and uh, and in this particular situation. You know, there's certainly nothing when you want to compare apples to apples that these documents were in boxes in Trump's basement locked up. They were secure. Whether they should have been there or not, they were secure. Hillary Clinton's server wasn't secure. She had classified documents on that, top secret documents on that. And we know it was hacked. So we know our enemies, the Russians, the Romanians, uh, the, the, the North Koreans got those documents. And the whole system from Obama to Comey to the FBI whitewashed it for her. So I, I don't see how they could do anything that's not equal to that to Trump, uh, which means that they would have to, you know, admonish him uh, and get whatever they, they is appropriate, if there is anything appropriate for them to get and uh, and move on. Last question very quickly, Paul. I appreciate your time. Will Trump win or sorry, will he run and will he win in 2024? Well, you know, I, I mean, he hasn't told me if he's going to run, but I do believe that you know, when you look at the record that he achieved of his successes and the failures of Biden's now 18 months in office, they're parallel. I mean, border security, uh, lawlessness, uh, economic uh, opportunity pushed out to all levels of society under Trump. And, uh, and, and Biden makes the case of why Trump needs to return to Washington, who is president matters. So I think I think he's going to run. I signed the book. I predict that. And if he runs, I do believe he'll win. Paul, appreciate your time. How do we get a copy of uh, prison or political prisoner persecuted, prosecuted, but not silenced? Well, it's in the bookstores now. Uh, you can get it online from Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Slam and Schuster. Uh, and it's readily available. So uh, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about the book and to share some of my thinking with you. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Good to meet you. Good to meet you. Paul Manafort. All right. When we come back, a tale of two conservative parties. Daniel Boardman is next from the National Telegraph. Stay with us. Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 a.m. Good afternoon. I have just accepted Her Majesty the Queen's kind invitation to form a new government. Let me pay tribute to my predecessor. Boris Johnson delivered Brexit, the COVID vaccine, and stood up to Russian aggression. History will see him as a hugely consequential prime minister. I'm honored to take on this responsibility at a vital time for our country. What makes the United Kingdom great is our fundamental belief in freedom, in enterprise, and in fair play. There you go. That is the uh, the new leader of the Conservative Party in Great Britain and now Prime Minister Liz Truss made her first speech uh, today promising to tackle rising energy bills and the cost of living crisis uh, in the next couple of days. Uh, I think she likes to try and evoke the memory of Margaret Thatcher. We saw her earlier on, uh, you know, posing in uh, 
in a tank, uh, a la Margaret Thatcher. But is she really a Thatcherite? Is she really even a conservative? Daniel Boardman, senior contributor for the National Telegraph. Hey, Daniel, how are you? I'm doing well. And I think if you define conservative in Britain by what it's been in the last 12 years, which is an absolute moral coward, afraid to stand on their principles, then yeah, she's a very strong conservative. And she'll be <laughs> Boris Johnson, who was David Cameron, who was Liz Trust, who was Theresa May, who will be all these people again. So yeah, you, you, I, I, I don't expect any groundbreaking developments in, in British politics. This seems to be, you know, vanilla ice cream for a different brand of vanilla ice cream. So she is, she is talking about, you know, heavy uh, tax cuts, massive tax cuts uh, f- for Britain and uh, again, capping, spending something like 100 billion pounds to cap uh, energy prices to give relief. Because I think I read, uh, well, I know in, in Germany now it's, it costs about $3,000, an average heating bill for the month. I think it's similar in, in Great Britain. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on her uh, her immediate uh, her immediate plans? Well, I mean, capping energy prices is a good idea if you want to do it by attacking the things that cause energy prices to increase, like believing in net zero fantasy thinking and funding. So none of this is she's proposing doing nothing to fix the problem. This is essentially spending tons of money to cap the problem by saying, okay, we're putting a freeze on your energy bill. So for the next year, your bill is going to be stable. We're going to incur massive debt to do this. And then in a year, your bills are going to go up and you will pay for this over the next 10 to 20 years, which will likely be due to compounding incompetence the next 40 to 50 years. So this is a left-wing solution to um, energy crisis. Now, she is, I guess, lucky in the fact that Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party exists, who have come up with an even crazier solution, which is nationalize everything and, you know, make business illegal, just seize the banks and seize the production companies. And Venezuela did it. It worked there for 15 and a half seconds. Do it here. Um, so it it's like she has a plan to tackle energy prices. Great. With a way that has proven to never work ever. Okay, this is uh, par for the course for the British Tories. You know, this, I guess, couples with standing up to Russia, which, again, is good. I don't like the hyper-isolationist, quasi-Trumpian, like, you know, let the Russians roll over the world to fight the deep state nonsense. But standing up to Russia means, well, getting rid of all the green energy nonsense, because that's the only way Russia is able to take over the world, is because they're a giant gas stop. Their economy is a paper tiger, but they're able to keep Europe under their thumb because Europe is run by a screaming Swedish girl, like a literal deranged Swedish girl is running European policy. And it's caused the Russians to have complete power of the Europeans. And, you know, I think there's a famous clip of Trump telling the Germans exactly where these policies are going to end up in five years. And they're all laughing at him at the UN. Well, now they're all manifested to be true because two plus two equals four and always has. So in, a, in 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 short, you're a big fan of uh, British Prime Minister Liz Truss. Uh, just kidding. Uh, no, she is. I mean, she's still committed to net zero, uh, still blaming the energy prices on Putin's war in Ukraine. Um, is she a globalist? Probably. Like by by like by. I mean, it's it's like by what standards do we call people globalist these days? Like some people, it's like okay, anyone who's who believes in like global free trade is a globalist. Okay, that's a bit uh, bit of a very low bar to hit. But like in terms of like globalists, is this like, I mean, unless she really breaks trust, but like these policies do sound globalist where it's, you know, 
we're going to just do green net zero green greeniness to green the green name. Um, like the first messaging I see pulled out from her thing is like, oh, this will be the first cabinet with no white men in senior positions. And you go, OK, like we know you don't believe in this like crazy woke ideology, but this is more of the to me, this isn't wokeism. This is more don't hurt me Tory politics, which is we're going to let the Labour Party or the liberals or whoever the left is dictate the pace of society. And the only reason we're having a cabinet like this is not because we truly believe in diversity or any of this nonsense, but we're going to hammer the Labour with it because Labour's going to say you're racist. And then you got to say to the Labour person, well, look at this cabinet. It's all white uh, women and black men or whatever it is. And like that's such a they don't care. Like you, by default, by not being them, you're an evil person. So this is a proven losing battleground. So yeah, you could say probably there's a bit of a globalist nonsense going on here where again, her, her policies to fix energy won't fix energy. She's not addressing any of the real problems with green nonsense. She's not actually standing up to Russian aggression in any meaningful way. Um, but making all the noises that, you know, other in parties internationally make. So she is making standard noises, the same noises Boris Johnson made. She's making the same noises Theresa May made and the same noises Cameron made. So if they're globalists, so is she. All right. We'll uh, take a time out, Daniel. When we come back, we'll talk about the Conservative Party right here in Canada. Of course, the convention happening this Saturday. And uh, we'll discuss all of that with Daniel Boardman, senior contributor for the National Telegraph. Don't go away. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. All right. Will it be an anointment of Pierre Polyev on Saturday when the Canadian Conservative Party holds its leadership convention? Or is there still some obscure, complicated path to victory for Jean Charest? Daniel Boardman, senior contributor for the National Telegraph. Please support independent media, thenationaltelegraph.com. Uh, so what say you, Daniel, this Saturday? Is it going to be one ballot and done for Pierre Polyev? Or because of this complicated formula and a point system, is it still possible somehow, some way, for someone like Jean Charest to come up the middle and and defeat Pierre Polyev? I mean, I don't want to say impossible, but next to impossible is probably what we're dealing with here. I mean, the only, the great thing about Saturday is this will be finally over. Um, Polyev is going to win. There, there doesn't seem to be, they're not like, you can say there might be this convoluted second ballot path for Charade. That's only if like 10 to 15 people were in the field where it really gets diluted and divided up by regional things. But I don't really see the Scott Aitchinson nuts, like really affecting um, uh, the race in any meaningful way. Um, so I don't think there's enough people in the race for this crazy mathematical nonsense thing to give us Andrew Sheriff or Maxime Bernier um, like it did um, two races ago. So I, I think Polyev wins and it's it's about time this thing is over and the Conservative Party gets a real leader. Um, and then we, you know, we can watch the media just melt down. So if Trudeau is sitting back and his, uh, his um, puppet masters are sitting back and watching Pierre Polyev win, let's say, on a first ballot uh, and seeing, you know, the huge crowds that he's drawing, which I, I suppose you could draw a comparison to, you know, Trudeau was drawing some big crowds back in 2015 before, you know, people actually figured out there's nobody home. Um, does Trudeau say, let's call an election now, or does he try and hold on for another two years? I mean, it's hard to say what Trudeau's thinking, because is he so megalomaniacal and, and far gone that he thinks he can beat anyone that he reads the CBC who says, you know, 
oh, no one likes Pierre Polyev. He goes, oh, no one likes Pierre Polyev. I mean, Rosemary Barton said it must be true. Um, I'll call an election, destroy him now um, and and go forward. But I, I really think the, the is there an election question really uh, is, can the liberal and NDP party hold together uh, to make it? So it's, I don't think it's so much about is he afraid of Polyev or not, which I think if he's reasonably is, I think it's more to do with does the alliance between him and Jagmeet hold. Right. And uh, I guess the last time, well, it's not the last time, but there was a similar situation back in the early 70s with um, his father, Pierre Trudeau, and uh, the NDP leader at that time was, I believe it was D- uh, David Lewis. Um, and what happened after the um, uh, that two-year coalition, Trudeau went on and, and won a majority. The NDP didn't get any credit for you know any, any of the bills that passed and so forth. And I don't think it worked out very well for the NDP. So is this ultimately then up to... To Jagmeet Singh to say, no, we're pulling the we're pulling the uh, the string now. We're 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 bailing out of this this coalition, and uh, we're going to go to the polls. Yeah, but I th- I think the problem with that is I think it's actually up to the NDP backbenchers to force Jagmeet's hand. But I think Jagmeet kind of knows he's not popular within the party. Um, I don't really see him acting in the best interest of the NDP. I think he's acting in the best interest of Jagmeet, which is get me to 2025, get me my lifelong pension so I never have to really work uh, and I can get an advisory role on whatever social justice committee who decides that, I don't know, something, something, something Jews or whatever it is they're, they're doing in social justice these days. All right. So um, do you think Polyev has done a good enough job at um, cultivating support among those constituencies typically aligned with the liberals, even the NDP? So, I mean, in the 80s, we had the Reagan coalition, which were, you know, blue collar workers. Um, uh, I mean, have the NDP sufficiently ticked off the working class that that there's some ground to be made there uh, for the conservatives under Polyev? Oh, absolutely. I think this is the greatest mistake that the left has made recently. And it take I think it takes a reasonable conservative. I think someone like Polyev is much more likely to do this than O'Toole, even though O'Toole tried, um, where the modern left has so alienated the working class. They are about the, you know, they're, they're, they're the party for 20 year old college student taking gender studies. Um, and, you know, a lot of the working class care about working class issues and they don't care about, you know, calling everyone who's lived the last 200 years racist. So if there is a way where you can connect and say, listen, these are the things that affect you, the pricing book, inflation, here's how I'm going to make your life easier. I, I think there's huge ground to be made up uh, for Polyev specifically, better than every other conservative who's come before in the last 10 years. What about creating bridges to other um, usual liberal support uh, among women and let's say minorities? Um, I do think minorities are uh, a lot better than women. I think Polyev has, has a chance with there's there's the there's the general women tend to vote more liberal. And then as women, it's a natural thing. Like as women get more older, they get more conservative as they have more kids, they get more conservative. Um, but I really think the the working class as uh, the, the minority vote is really up for grabs, because another fundamental flaw, I think, in modern leftist ideology is even though it talks a lot about minorities and, and BIPOCs and can create all these different words, um, a lot of minorities come to Canada because they think it's a good place and want to be here. And these politics of social justice are very much upper middle class, white urban politics. Um, and a lot of minorities kind of want jobs for their kids and a better life. And I think, again, these these same things that work on the white factory worker also work on the uh, hardworking immigrant as well. 
All right. So very quickly to sum up, uh, Polyev, just a yes or no. Polyev, first ballot on Saturday? Uh, my money would be on first ballot, yeah. All right. Uh, fall or winter election? The winds are swirling. I mean, I was a no because of the leaders, but the signs are good. Yes. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to vote with my heart and say yes, just because I want it. And then conservative majority, minority uh, with poly of majority. There you go. All right. Daniel Boardman, senior contributor for the National Telegraph, the National dot com. Thanks, as always, Daniel. Uh, a pleasure. He wasn't so sure there. Ah, a pleasure, sort of. <laughs> We love them. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Declan, and Jacob. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. I'll speak with you at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello.